first reading is Luke 19, 1 to 10, and it can be found on the, on the page 1053 in the Church Bibles. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not, because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a singer. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Thank you, Rebecca Hine. Good morning. You've joined us today as we embark on the second of a three-part mini-series here at Upton Vale, simply entitled Generous. And I want to start by asking a very simple question with a horribly complicated answer. And it's this. Why be generous? Why be generous? In a previous job, I once had a very depressing conversation with a work colleague as we drove to a client's when he argued that, that everything we did, every action that we take as human beings, everything that we perform is inherently selfish. We only give, as it were, to receive. We might only do something to make us feel good. We are at the centre of everything we do. Generosity is fake. It's not a real concept. Why be generous? A recent string of articles by uh, psychology experts actually backs up this argument. Here's one, uh, Lisa Firestone, for example. She writes on the benefits of generosity. And she says this, year after year, more and more studies are highlighting the benefits of generosity on both our physical and mental health. Not only does generosity reduce stress, supports one's physical health, it enhances one's sense of purpose and naturally fights depression. It's also shown to increase one's lifespan. Why be generous? A similar article in the uh, magazine Psychology Today uh, uses simple language so someone like me can understand it. Uh, one article reads this. Generosity is a good thing for our mental health and well-being because when we give to someone we care about, we make it more likely for them to give to us, making it more likely to give to them and so on. And as a result, regions of our brain associated with pleasure, social connection and trust light up, making us feel all warm and gooey inside. And who doesn't want to feel all warm and gooey inside? Why be generous? 
Let's leave that question for a moment. Uh, Please open your Bibles, if you have one in front of you, to those verses in Luke 19, 1 to 10. And here we have a short passage describing a meeting between a man, Zacchaeus, and Jesus. And I'll start that passage in verse 2 and 3. We get the key words that define who Zacchaeus is. How would you describe yourself in three words? I always think that's an interesting challenge. It's a fascinating exercise to do. Um, Zacchaeus and I share a word. See if you can spot which one. Um, Verse two and three, what does it say? It says Zacchaeus is short. He's wealthy and he's a tax collector. That's his identity. Short, wealthy, and a tax collector. And the fact that Zacchaeus is wealthy tells us that he hasn't got integrity with his finances as a tax collector. A Jewish tax collector would not be wealthy because they were paid handsomely by the Romans. Oh no. A Jewish tax collector would be wealthy because they were taking a cut from the taxes that they were collecting. They were stealing money for themselves from their own people. The Romans turned a blind eye to it, and their Jewish countrymen hated them for it. The Mishnah, in fact, which was the Jewish book of oral law at that time, puts tax collectors right up there with robbers and murderers. So there we have it. Zacchaeus, the short, wealthy tax collector. And so the story goes on in Luke 19, Zacchaeus climbs a tree because he wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus stops and calls him down and asks to have a meal at his house. Such a simple thing to do. And yet, something happens with Zacchaeus. A man with no financial integrity, a man who stole from his own kin to make himself rich, appears to have a complete change of direction in regards to the very defining characteristics of who he is. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This is a man who in the length of a few short sentences has gone from one side of Jewish law to way out the other side of Jewish law. The highest standard of law in the Old Testament for the Jews, said that if someone has been wronged, the wrongdoer, in this case, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, should pay an extra one-fifth or 20% of the money they originally stole. This is found in Leviticus 5, verse 16, and again in Numbers 5, verse 7, where the Old Testament law is written. That's what was required of Zacchaeus by Jewish law. And that would show his integrity. That would have shown that he changed his ways. But what does Zacchaeus say? Today I'm giving away 50% of everything I have to the poor. 20% was the benchmark of ultra-generosity in later Judaism. And I'm going to repay four times the amount that I've cheated. Not the extra one-fifth by law, but four times the amount. Zacchaeus moves from being a rich thief and cheat in verse 2, to showing true financial integrity. And this overwhelming generosity by verse 8. Why? Back to my original question again. Why be generous? 
to answer that, I want to go back to another narrative, to something that happened way back at the beginning of Jewish history. Please bear with me. If you have a Bible in front of you, turn, to, turn with me now to Genesis 22, 1 to 14. Go right back to Genesis 22, 1 to 14 at the beginning of your Bible. On my Bible here, it's on page 23, very near the start. And let me tell you a story from another perspective in any case. Looking back, I always knew something wasn't quite right. It wasn't that Dad suddenly, without warning, decided to take me on a road trip. There was nothing special about that. At 75 years old, my dad up to left everything behind. His country, his house, his friends, everything he knew, and became a wanderer, a nomad. It was the life I was born into. It's partly what my dad was famous for. Now, a few days road trip was nothing special at all. That's not what bothered me. Perhaps it was the way he kept looking at me as we loaded up that donkey with firewood. That fierce expression on his face as we walked to the place where we were going to offer a sacrifice to God. I spent the first day chatting with servants. They were amiable enough. But on that second day, on that second day, I walked quietly next to Dad. Seemed the right thing to do. He didn't say anything, and neither did I. On the third day, the servants stayed at the campsite. The countryside had become rocky and desolate. It was too tough for the poor donkey to carry on beside us, but it didn't really matter anyway. I'm strong now. I'm much stronger than Dad these days. I was happy to carry the wood. I think in a way, I always knew. I asked the question that day because it was there begging to be asked, but I think I always knew the answer. I couldn't quite bear the silence anymore or the look of sheer determination in my dad's jawline. So I asked the question, the obvious one, the massive one. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice, dad? God will provide it was dad's only terse response. And we walked in silence after that. When dad built the altar and looked at me with those pleading eyes, I let him bind my arms and my legs. It wasn't even that tight. I could feel his hand shaking, and I wanted to feel sorry for him. I wanted not to be angry or confused or scared or to pay attention to the knife at his side. Would he have done it? Would he have gone through with it? I try not to think about that answer now because it doesn't really help anything. All I try and think about now is that he never had to. The joy on his face as he flung the knife and hugged me, my feet and legs still ludicrously bound by the rope so I couldn't hug him back. The ram God led us to, trapped by its horns in the thicket. The ram that took my place on the firewood. The ram that became the sacrifice. Do you know, my dad still calls that hill, the Lord will provide. Even now, an echo of what he said to me on that long day's walk, the Lord will provide. It's a tough story to listen to, isn't it? Even as I prepared this, I was thinking I should have stuck with the short man up the tree. Maybe you're visiting Upton Vale for the first time this morning, 
And maybe you've come to explore a bit more about who this God is. And maybe you're now sitting here totally confused. Or maybe this story has confirmed your worst suspicions about Christianity and religion. Can I encourage you that there are going to be a lot of us Christians here this morning who are also desperately uncomfortable with this story? About a man willing to sacrifice his own child to God. The fact that Jewish tradition would put Isaac in his mid-30s in this story, by the way, might make it a little bit more palatable, a bit more acceptable. But as a father and a family man, I still find this desperately uncomfortable. Let me ask you to bear with me, because I think we need to look at this story from a different perspective. I think this story changes when we see it not through the eyes of Isaac, the son, like I just told it, but through the eyes of Abraham, the father. The first thing we need to understand about Abraham is a man of faith. And by that, I mean that Abraham trusts God, and Sue brilliantly demonstrated trust earlier to us. By faith, uh, Hebrews 11 talks about, in the New Testament, talks about Abraham in this way, about his faith. By faith, Abraham left his country. By faith, Abraham and Sarah trust God for children. And by faith, Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son. Abraham trusted in God. And there's little clues throughout this story if you care to look for them. In verse 8, when Abraham says God will provide, maybe he wasn't hiding the truth from his son Isaac. Maybe Abraham really had faith that God was always going to intervene. And again, if you look at verse 5, Abraham talking to his servants, Abraham says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And then notice, we will worship and we will come back to you. Not I, but we. Maybe, just maybe, Abraham had faith that Isaac would be returning with him. Maybe the story of Abraham and Isaac is one of faith. When we think about the question, why be generous, we get the answer because it's a question of faith. It's a question of do we trust God? Like Abraham, we're challenged to give up everything to God. The Bible says we need to put God first and foremost in our lives, before money, before comfort, before our families. And surely that's exactly what Abraham is doing here. But you know what? I think there's a problem with that too. There's a leap, loophole in it, if you will. It's one that I've used myself in the past, and it's this. I'm not generous because I simply don't have the faith of Abraham. It's simple logic, isn't it? If we're generous because we are faithful, then if we have less faith, we are less generous. It all becomes a matter of what I can do. Now, I'd like to be generous. I really would. But I'm sorry, I don't have the faith of Abraham. It's great that other people are generous with their time, with their money, with their plans. Um, but as for me, I just don't quite have the faith. If the story of Abraham and Isaac is about Abraham, then it doesn't have to be all about me. But do you know what? I think we're still looking at this from the wrong perspective. Let me uh, demonstrate this very quickly for you. Imagine now if I get, uh, have I got my pocket? Yes. If I get my phone out and I take a photo of you beautiful congregation. Imagine, I'm not going to do it, but imagine I put that on the screen right now. What is the first thing you're going to do? 
what is the first thing you're going to do? You're going to look for yourself, aren't you? You're going to look for yourself in the photo. Of course you do, because you're human. We all do it. A few weeks ago, I went to watch uh, Exeter Chiefs play rugby. I, I love watching um, Exeter Chiefs. I really enjoy it. And the match was also on TV. So what did I do? <laughs> I recorded it, and I went home, and I spent 80 minutes trying to spot myself in the crowd. Why? I know what I look like. I... I have a mirror in the house. If you're shown a photo, you look for yourself in it. If we watch a film, we find the character we identify the most with. And if we want to understand our story, we put ourselves at the centre of it. I don't tell this story of Abraham and Isaac to the children at Upton Vale. It's not part of our teaching programme. Why? Because the children will always be most likely to look at it from the point of view of Isaac. And it's natural, but I don't think it's helpful, and I don't think it's healthy. And when we look at this story as adults, we're inclined to put ourselves in the position of Abraham, aren't we? We say, would I be able to sacrifice my own child? Would I have that faith? But as Christians, we need to look at this story from a new perspective. If we follow God, we don't need to start, we need to start looking at it from a God perspective. You see, I don't believe this story of Abraham and Isaac is primarily one of Abraham's faith. We often tell it like that, and of course Abraham does have faith. But the story, the story is primarily one of God's faithfulness. We've got to stop putting us, and by us I mean human beings in the centre of the story, and start putting God there instead. If we start to sniff around for more detail in the Old Testament, we realise this strange story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son takes place in a much bigger story of God's rescue plan for all of mankind. You see, right at the very beginning, God made the world and it was perfect. But then we as human beings, we mess up. We decide we don't want God to be king. We want to be king of our own lives. And this decision leads to death and despair. But in Genesis 12, God launches his master plan. God asks Abraham to leave the country he knows and, um, and lives in because God has a new land that he wants to show him. That then what follows what's known as the Abrahamic covenant, three promises to Abraham. The first is that Abraham will be given a promised land. The second is that Abraham will be father of a great nation. And the third, and perhaps the most exciting of all, is that one day the whole world will be blessed, will be saved through Abraham and his descendants. And so at 75 years old, Abraham obeys God and sets off. But that's not all. Abraham and his wife Sarah can't have children. And as they get older and older, it becomes more and more apparent that this isn't going to happen. It seems like God's three promises to Abraham will fail at the very first hurdle. Israel and the whole world are not going to be saved because there's not going to be a great nation. There are no descendants of Abraham. The great rescue plan has failed before it's even started. But God is faithful to his promises. Abraham and Sarah receive a message saying that in one year Sarah will have a baby. And Sarah laughs because it's so ludicrous. She's so old, she cannot have children. 
but God is faithful to his promises. And one year later, a baby is born. His name is Isaac. So you see, when we look at this strange story of Abraham and Isaac, we need to realize its place in the big picture because Abraham certainly does. There's already been a journey. There's already been a relationship. Abraham has trusted God, and by stepping out in faith, has seen God at work again and again. Abraham knows that God's promises ring true. God will not let Abraham down. It is a story of God's faithfulness. It's a story of God will provide. And sure enough, God does provide. This time in the form of a ram taking Isaac's place on the sacrifice. Why be generous? Not because of faith, because that won't always hold up. That will sometimes waver, but because of God's faithfulness. Not because of what we might do, but because of who God is. Let's fast forward back again the 1,700 years or so to that short man sitting in a tree and back to Luke 19, 1 to 10. So Jesus has called Zacchaeus down from the tree and much to the disgust of the rest of the town who all start muttering away to themselves. The word for muttering here, by the way, is the same word used for grumbling that the Israelites did in the desert. The Israelites, they like a good grumble. And, um, and Jesus goes off and has a meal at Zacchaeus' house And then Zacchaeus has this change of heart we talked about earlier, where he suddenly shows incredible integrity and generosity with his money. And then Jesus says this in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. You see, Zacchaeus was showing the same characteristics as Abraham, the same radical generosity in everything he owned as Abraham did. Why? Because like Abraham, Zacchaeus had got a glimpse of the bigger picture, the God picture. In fact, for Zacchaeus, the big picture had just walked in his house and had a meal with him. When God promised Abraham that one day the whole world would be blessed through his descendants, God was talking about Jesus. God's amazing rescue plan would lead to Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth, being born through the line of Joseph, a line that leads right back to Abraham. Jesus, who would die for us for the times we've messed up. The story of Abraham and Isaac resounds so loudly with that rescue plan, it's hard not to jump straight through it and ignore God's faithfulness that builds all the way through the Bible. Did you spot it? Isaac is saved because a ram takes his place. A ram is placed on the wood instead of him because God provides it. Instead of Isaac dying, God provides a substitute to take Isaac's place. And now in his master rescue plan, Jesus himself walks the earth. Jesus, who, like the ram, takes our place on the wood. This time, a wooden cross. God provides someone who will be substituted for us. We deserve to die because we're the ones who have messed up. We're the ones who have chosen to live with ourselves as king of our lives and not God. 
But Jesus, the only one who has never messed up, takes our place. Our arms and our legs are unbound. We are freed and someone takes our place. The Lord will provide. And whilst Abraham has a glimpse of that rescue plan, Zacchaeus gets to eat a meal with him. No wonder his perspective changes so fast. No wonder Zacchaeus goes from short, wealthy tax collector in verse 2 and 3 to son of Abraham by verse 9. Here is someone who's met God's faithfulness in action and his only response, his only response is one of absolute integrity and radical generosity. So where can we land this journey we've gone on this morning? The first thing I would say is this. If we want to live a life that's full of integrity and radical generosity, then first and foremost, we have to get to know Jesus. There is no other substitute. If you're here at Upton Vale today and you don't yet know Jesus as king of your life, then that's where we stop this journey this morning. I'd encourage you to find out more about the man who changed Zacchaeus' world with a simple meal. We're running a series of Alpha courses here at Upton Vale, and that's a great way to explore a bit more about what the Bible says about this man, Jesus. Do go and ask at our information point for more details. Okay. If you're already a Christian, if you've made Jesus king of your life, you're not off the hook quite yet. Because the challenge we look at these verses, I think, is all about perspective. It's all about perspective. Let me show you one of my favorite t-shirts. Wonderfully, because I didn't think about it until this morning. It's ironed and clean, which is wonderful. And here it is. And I I love this t-shirt. Some of you might have seen me wearing it. It's called Duck and Rabbit. And what you can see is, if you look at it this way, it's a duck. Can we all see that? Yeah? And if we turn it this way, it's a rabbit. How good is that? Duck, rabbit. Duck, rabbit. I could do this all morning. I don't know why I did it. Hang on. (laughs) Being a follower of Jesus means a change of perspective, doesn't it? We have to move from the proverbial duck to the rabbit. We have no other choice. It stops becoming my story the day we start following Jesus, and it becomes God's story. It's God's faithfulness that allows us to be faithful and never the other way around. Being a Christian means being radically generous with our time, with our attitudes, with our finances. It's not about personality or even the amount of faith that we have. It's about God's faithfulness. It's the same story, but from a wildly different perspective. Do you think Zacchaeus was a naturally generous man? Because I don't. Did he suddenly become naturally generous? Did he have some kind of generosity transplant the moment that he met Jesus? No. Zacchaeus just saw the world from a different perspective. He met God's faithfulness in Jesus. He saw firsthand God's rescue plan for the world. He met God's generosity, love in action, and that flipped everything round. Duck to rabbit, rabbit to duck. 
It's a toughie, but that's our calling as Christians. And it's my own honest prayer as I tackle each day. Help me see things today from a God perspective and not a me perspective. It's a consequence of taking me off the throne and putting God there instead and making God king of our lives. And I hold up my own hands and say, I don't find this easy. And a lot of days I get this wrong. But you know what? It's all part of that upside down kingdom of following Jesus. It's all part of that same kingdom practices that say we should love our enemies and rejoice in being persecuted. Even since I prepared this sermon last week, God's been challenging my perspective in a simple situation. Some of you might know that I play table tennis league and last Tuesday I had a match. I was playing a team that I don't particularly enjoy playing and sport is a place where I can easily become riled. As I drove to the match, I heard God telling me clearly to approach the night, not from a me perspective, but from a God perspective. And I wonder what that might look like. How might the evening be different if it was about God's faithfulness and not about me? Is that even possible in a table tennis match? I'll tell you this. The whole evening turned out completely different. Did I win all my games? No, I didn't. But last Tuesday evening, I honestly believe God built unexpected relationships around a table tennis table. I got to encourage rather than grumble. I got to spend time listening rather than moaning. And to my surprise, someone opened up to me who I had no idea was hurting so much. And when I came back home, we got cream day two, by the way. And um, Ellie asked me if I'd had a good evening. I was generally surprised to hear myself say yes. In just a small way, a God perspective made all the difference. Rabbit to duck, duck to rabbit. I recently read a book by a guy called Leonard Sweet, and he has this lovely phrase. He says this, as Christians, we need to live our lives at an angle to the world. As Christians, we need to live our lives at an angle to the world. We still are who God made us. That doesn't change. We still have joys and struggles. We still need to be in the world. But our perspective, like Zacchaeus, changes duck to rabbit, rabbit to duck. We need to live our lives at the angle to the world. So how is God challenging you this morning? As we continue this mini-series on generous what is God saying? Maybe it's about time. Time is such a precious commodity in our fast-living society, isn't it? What does time look like from a God perspective? It could be like my table tennis match about our attitudes. Isn't it amazing how we become salt and light as we live our lives at an angle to the world? Or it might be like Zacchaeus about our finances. Is God calling us this morning to look again about how we give, how we are generous with our money? What do our finances look like from a God perspective? Let's end by going right back to the beginning and asking ourselves one more time. Why be generous? What has this morning led us to? Maybe it's not about me after all. Maybe being generous is not about feeling good or bad about myself. It's not about encouraging others to be generous. 
so they can be generous back to me. Why be generous? Maybe, maybe it's about a new perspective. Maybe it's about seeing God's love in action. After all, isn't that what generosity really is? Love in action. If we truly believe that Jesus came to earth to die for us, if we truly believe in God's radical rescue plan for us, then our experience of the whole world shifts. Why be radically generous? Simply this, because God was first. Let me pray before the band leads us in response to what God has been saying to each of us this morning. Dear God, thank you that it's your faithfulness and not my faith that makes all the difference. Please show me how I can live my life at an angle to the world. Show me clearly the God perspective. Amen.